blessing to be here with you guys. Uh, I think this is the third time I've, I've spoken at your church. And um, the first two times, I, I was here by myself. And I told you that I had a family. And, and, and in case you'd never believed me, I brought my tribe in the back, uh, my wife Jen and my five children. Um, so they're going to keep quiet during the sermon. <laughs> no promises. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and honestly, uh, it's, it's wonderful, as always, to come up here. The only, t- the only sad bit for me is that Daniel's not here. He's my friend. <laughs> so I'm, I miss him, as, as you do. But I'm thankful for this opportunity. And um, uh, my wife and I, if, uh, if you've heard, we're, we're uh, kind of in a transi- transitional place right now in ministry. Uh, we were pastoring, I was pastoring a church for a long time. And uh, in the last six months, I've uh, taken on an interim pastorate role at... Uh, uh, Monash Christian Fellowship in Clayton, just across the street from Monash University. So that's been exciting and very, very different, more of a college-type ministry, and uh, that's been exciting. And then, um, and now we're we're uh, we're just about to launch into a new uh, ministry endeavor, but uh, but we're still keeping that quiet for now. Um, but uh, your prayers, I know some of you have been praying for us as uh, we've been in this uh, transition period, and uh, thank you for that. Um, but again, it is, it is wonderful to be here this morning. And just before we start looking at the word, um, let's, let's just give a moment to the Lord in prayer and commit our hearts to this time. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity that you give us each, Lord, each and every Sunday to come together as your body, come together, Lord, as your people, and hear your word to, Lord, be renewed and refreshed through the Spirit of God, as we study and understand your word, as we study and understand and are renewed by, Lord, your word's power in our life and in our hearts. And so, Lord, I just pray that we just commit this time, Lord, to you as we look into your mighty and powerful word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we are all creatures of habit. You don't know, you are a creature of habit. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. Everyone develops their own habits and how we do things, how we dress, how we sleep, even how you brush your teeth. That's a habit. This is both a good and a bad thing. If Just think about it. If you were made to think about everything that you did every, every day, at every moment of the time, you would be exhausted. Think about all the energy it took for you to learn how to drive. Every moment you were thinking, okay, how do I move? What am I thinking about? What am I looking at? And now, after years of driving, you don't even think about it. It's just a habit. You're confident. You're so confident that you do other things as you're supposed to be driving. I see women putting on their makeup. I see people texting and driving And all the other things that we do that we're not supposed to do while we're driving because we're so used to it. It's a habit. It's so so comfortable. And I can honestly tell you, I I can boldly say, I have never put makeup on while driving. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But driving has become a habit. It's It's second nature. It's automatic. We don't even think about it. And there's so many things that we do that we don't even think about. And that's a blessing. That is a blessing because we don't want to be stressed out every time we drive. We don't want to be stressed out about every time we have to tie our shoes in the morning or get dressed. We'd be exhausted every day before we even get to breakfast if that's how we live. So a habit's a good thing. But not all habits are good. Some are bad. 
biting your nails, smoking. Those are, these are bad habits we all accept. But, you know, sometimes even the way that you think, even the way that you think, we train our minds and our bodies to react in sinful ways. That could be a bad habit. We do it. Why, why do we do what we do? Because it's habit, a forced, of, a forced, uh, a forced way of thinking. And you might say, no, 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 no. I know better. I know the Bible. The Bible says that sin is not a habit. It comes from having a sinful heart. And I completely agree with you. But I agree with this. We all have a sinful heart. And we need Jesus to redeem us from that, that wretched heart, that wretched life that we had without Christ. And now we retrain our ways of thinking. We retrain our ways of thinking, our ways of living, so that we can undo these patterns that we've created, these patterns that we've instilled in our lives since we first enslaved ourselves to them, even before we were in Christ. This is what happens by the Spirit's work of renewing your mind with the Word of God. I often ask people when I'm discipling them, why did you do that? Why, why did you do that? And I often hear, I wasn't thinking, I just did it force of habit using profanity responding with unkind sarcastic remarks there are so many ways that we train ourselves to be train our mind and our body to be out of a force of habit to be sinful to be used as a weapon of unrighteousness and we are creatures of habit and some habits need to be killed some habits need to be trained Retrained, changed. You know, in World War II, stories of Nazi concentration camps started flooding the media. And what was so surprising to hear is that these gates that were flung open and these Holocaust victims would be given food and new clothing. And they were told that they were free to go. And you know what they did? They would go back into the same wretched huts that they lived in during the war. Why? Habit. They knew no other way. This is what they were used to, accustomed to. But you know, the most tragic, the most tragic thing I have ever heard of someone being enslaved to their habits are men and women living in slavery, men living in slavery once they were free. The most wretched story that I know of is our own. We who live with the freedom of Jesus Christ, the freedom of Christ, at times in our lives return like a dog returning to the vomit. We at times go back to living a life of a spiritually dead person, indulging in our sins, indulging in our flesh. And this is part of what the Apostle Paul deals with in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to take a look at the death-life paradox of the gospel. When you become a Christian, you enter into a paradox, a death-life paradox. Understand this. Death is, total, is a total transition, a total new way of life. A complete and permanent change from the way things were before to the way things are now. When someone dies, Christian or not, 
they're gone. They're gone. Their, their, their body is a shell. You do not have an opportunity to have them near you again as they were when they were alive because they're gone. And when something is dead, you know what? It's dead. It's dead. There's no power. You have no power over the dead. You can't say, all right, dead body, jump. It does nothing. If you, if you say jump, it's not going to ask you how high. It's not going to do anything. They receive no pleasure or pain from, from your company. A dead person has no effect on a living person. They ask for nothing. They are dead. And Paul, in this passage in Romans 6, is going to provide four tests. Four tests for us to see if we are living in the land of the dead or are we spiritually alive? Are we spiritually dead or are we spiritually alive? We're going to see four ways to die to be alive. Four ways to die to be alive. Four contrasts to life and death. To know whether you are living in Christ or if you are spiritually dead. To be alive to Christ, you must be dead to this world. So let's look at four ways to die to be alive. And the first requirement of eternal life is the death of sin. The death of sin. Are you dead to sin? Because the implication is that if you are dead to sin, you are alive to righteousness. If you are dead to unrighteousness, therefore you must be then alive to righteousness. So first, Paul gives a question. He gives a question that needs to be answered. Look at with me. We're going to read first, first, the first two verses of um, Romans 6. Verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Question. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Big question mark. See, chapters 6 and 7 are broken up into four questions because of something that Paul says in chapters in chapter 5 previously. Paul has just explained how God's grace has given us in salvation through one man, Jesus Christ, a grace. In chapter 5, he says that our sinful nature came from one man, Adam. And in the same way, because of this grace, in one man named Jesus comes a whole new life. So death comes from one man, and now in Jesus, life comes from one man. And he makes that point at the very end of this chapter, of chapter 5. If we look at just the, the two previous verses, and, or actually just in verse 19, just look at verse 19 and 20, Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where, there, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, Paul knows the wickedness of the heart and what men are with twisted minds will do when, when you promote God's grace. He's promoting God's grace of how we were saved through Jesus Christ. 
through this grace. And he makes this contrast. Some readers, he knows that that passage, as he explains this grace, this immense grace that we have from Jesus Christ, he knows that some will read that passage and say that what Paul is saying is that the more we sin, the more grace is necessary. And therefore, the more grace that is shown by God, the more glory God gets. So we should sin more, right? No! So therefore, he then jumps into, he transitions in chapter 6. Should we sin more for God's glory? No! Of course not! May it never be! And what Paul does by saying, by no means, he emphatically says, no! In, in my Greek class when I was in seminary, when I was in Bible college, I had a professor, a Greek professor, he said there's three ways in the Greek you could say no. Three ways. And he likened it, he said, Here, and here's my illustration, it's like dating a girl. It's like when you try to ask a girl out on a date. There's three ways she can say no. She can give you a soft no. She bats her eyes and flirts, suggesting, go ahead, ask again. No, no, come on. Or she can give you a real no. You can ask a girl out and she'll say no. A real negative response often followed with the phrase, I thought we were just friends. Yeah, just no. It's just, it's just a no. The third way to say no, the way that Paul says no here in this text, by no means. This is like going to a girl's door, asking the girl out on a date, and she responds by saying, go away. I'm calling the police. No. <laughs> May it never be. By no means. Get out. That's Paul's response. So because of this great grace that God's given us by his, for his glory, should we just keep on sinning? No. Paul's saying, what? Are you kidding me? What are you thinking? No. How does a person, and here's his reason, how does a person who is supposedly dead to sin, how does that person now live again in sin? You can't do that. A dead person doesn't respond. He's dead. And if you're dead to sin, you do not respond in sin. That is even more insane and sadder than all those stories of those Holocaust victims who walked away from their freedom and back into their disease-infested concentration camp bunkers. Hearing that they were free, they walked back into prison, not knowing what to do next. That's sad. That's tragic. But that's us when we go back to our own sinful ways. Every time. And to illustrate that point, Paul now describes our death by reminding us of our baptism. Verses 3 and 4. Baptism, which is really a reference to a violent death. Our violent death. Do you know, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, 
just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is appearing, uh, sorry, Paul is appealing to a Christian audience. He's speaking to brothers. And at this point, at this point, at this point, if you don't understand what it means to die in, to sin, then you do not understand what your baptism meant, is what he's saying. And your obedience in baptism is a foundational part of becoming a Christian. It's the beginning of a Christian life. It signifies the beginning of what God has done in your life in Christ. And I'm sure you know that baptism really means to be immersed, right? It means immersion. That's why I think, I don't think we should, we're we're Baptists, of course, right? (laughs) Full immersion, right? Okay, just checking. You never know. (laughs) Um, When I say baptism, all of us think of the modern idea of a baptism service in a church. And what might surprise you, as it surprised me, is when I started studying the word baptism, it doesn't just mean submerged. It doesn't just mean submerged, but it has a violent connotation to it. A violent connotation to it. It was used to describe a ship being sunk or pulled down during a battle. It was used to describe a person who was being drowned. Leon Morris comments on at this point, when baptism is applied to Christian initiation, we ought to not think in terms of gentleness and inspiration. It means death. Death to a whole way of life. It is that this that is Paul's point here. Christians are people who have died. And their baptism emphasizes that death. A violent, total, submerging death. The word death is important because starting here in verse 2, all the way to the end of verse 13, Paul uses that word in every single verse. This is a strong and emphatic point. If you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. If you, are, if you have been baptized in him, you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. Alive in Christ. Before you were dead to God and alive to sin. But now there's been a transference. Something is switched. You are alive in Christ and dead to sin. What does that mean? Before being in Christ, you had no ability to give God glory. Your best and most noble works were but just filthy rags to him. You were fit for destruction because everything you did was covered with the stink of a spiritually decomposing body. Rotten. A rotten life that you called living. A rotten life that God called you away from. A life of death before you lived in a life of sin. But in Christ. But God full of grace and mercy, changed everything in an exchange on the cross. What was dead, you spiritually, is now alive spiritually in him. And the dead have no authority over the living. Zombies aren't real. Zombies aren't real. The walking dead, dead people don't have any impact on living people. Full stop. Your baptism signifies an exchange. You're not dead. You're alive. 
You were dead to Christ. You became a Christian. And in becoming alive in Christ, you now died. The old you died. Now that you're in Christ, you must die. You must be buried, drowned, submerged, baptized. The old self is gone. So you die to sin. But the implication is that when you come up, you are now a new creation. Alive in Christ Jesus. Alive to righteousness. The life that we have in Christ So Paul is clearly pointing out a sober truth. You are either spiritually dead or you are spiritually alive. But if you are spiritually alive, why? Ready? He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. He says, if you're spiritually alive, why and how can you want to live like you were spiritually dead? He's not talking about being sinless. He's talking about having a heart direction that desires righteousness and that is not excusing unrighteousness living with the word grace. Oh, the Lord will forgive me. Having, that's licentious living. Living fleshly and openly in sin and presuming upon the grace of God. Ah, he'll forgive me. How can you live like that if you're alive? If you really are alive? May it never be. So the first test is that we die to sin and live for righteousness. Are you dead to sin? And secondly, the second test is death of self. Death of self itself. Death of self itself. (laughs) Basically, the you, the you must die if you are to live for Christ. Now that you understand the power that has come in Christ, a new life, a life of righteousness, a death of sin, now you live for a new purpose. It's the death of self. He says this by first pointing to Christian to uh, Christians' unity in Christ. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. As mentioned already, the symbol of baptism, it's just a symbol, but the symbol of baptism is this death-life exchange. And here in verse 5, Paul highlights the one to whom we were with in that baptism, in Jesus Christ. But here's the point. What goes down must come up. He is risen. Jesus has gone to the grave and is now raised up, resurrected, sits in the right hand of the Father. He was crucified for our sins. He went to the grave. He was submerged. The ground swallowed him up. The ground swallowed him as his tomb was sealed on Good Friday. If death could hold him, that's where he would stay. But he was resurrected. He is alive. He is risen. And if you go down into death with Christ, you have an unmistakable promise to come up like he did, a resurrection like his. And note the certainty here. There's no question. There's no question. 
The spiritual reality is simple. Almost put as just a matter of fact. Just believe it. This is true. The certainty is so obvious. You in his death and resurrection have become one. If you are united in death, then you are united with him in life, eternal life, the resurrection itself. This is a term of union. In this passage, it's, it's, it's gardening. This is a term of being grafted. It's a gardening term. You in Christ have been grafted to the vine, the source of life itself. Between you and the vine, there is no difference. You are to be seen as one. You are part of the, you are part of the vine. You are part of this plant. You are one. And what does this unity then do? It gives you freedom from self. Not only are you united in Christ, now that you're united in Christ, you have freedom. Freedom from self. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 6. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The result of this union, of being grafted into Christ, is our freedom from our very selves. A Christian's old self is the person you were spiritually before you trusted Christ. When you were still under sin, powerless, unable to stop sinning, unable to give God glory, unable to respond to him. When God considered you an enemy, that's the old self. That's who you were before Christ. But then God changed everything. You heard that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, sinless, for your place. You repent and believe. However, you repent, you repent as a believing Christian. You are no longer a sinner, like you, you're, sorry, you're no longer a, a, sorry, you're no longer the dead person. The, the, the old self is gone. But you're not sinless. You are now a redeemed saint. And the Greek word for old is referring to something that is worn out and obsolete. The old way is worthless. Paul is referring to our old self which died with Christ. Once coming to Christ, our hearts are made new. A new direction and love for God is given and granted to us. This is called our regeneration. God has removed our hard, calloused hearts and given us a new regenerated heart. A heart that's soft to him, that beats after him and his glory. We no longer follow the old heart's desire, but the memories and the influences, the habits of our old sinful self is still there influencing us as we live, as our body, as well as our body. In Colossians 3, 9 to 10, it reads, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
We're putting off the old and putting on the new. The body of sin is a reference to our fallen, broken flesh, which we still have. We need a resurrected body to match our new hearts. That's our hope, our promise in the future when we are resurrected in glory. Our flesh obeys the pleasures of this world and affirms the desires of the old pattern, the old self. So if you're in Christ, your old self, referring to the unregenerated unregenerated self before Christ, and your body, your physical body of sin, referring to the physical weaknesses and sinful pleasures of the flesh that enjoy this sin. Dr. MacArthur, John MacArthur writes this, The believer does not have two competing natures, the old and the new, but one nature that is still incarcerated in an unredeemed flesh. Sin has no authority over you. The old has been crucified. And look at the absoluteness of this language. The old self was crucified. The body of sin is to be nothing. The enslavement of yourself is gone. You're free, is what he's saying. He's emphatically pointing out to the fact that you are free in Christ. Now here's the bottom line. The old self is the person you were before becoming a Christian, before being transformed, before being crucified with Christ. Your old self is the life that God saved you from. That old self was crucified with Christ. So that means that the old self is gone. You are either dead or alive. You are either living as your old self or as your new self, as a new creation in God, fighting that fight in Christ. To Christians, we are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new. And continuing on with the theme showing that death has a clear result. What then dies for you to be alive? There must be a death of sin. There must be a death of self. And there is a death to slavery. My third point. Verses 8 to 11. Death to slavery. First, let's read verses 8 and 9. The first point See, there is a new master. Verses 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The Christian life is not negative. The emphasis of death is to emphatically point out how different the new life in Christ is. Because we have died with Christ so that we will live with him. And that word dominion means to dominate. To exercise total control over another. Your old master, sin, is dead. Because the new master is life, eternal life, Jesus Christ himself But the only way you can have any part in him is if he dominates 
everything about you. When, you, when we are baptized, we, are, we have died to the old master. In baptism, we are buried with Christ. The old passes away completely, and the new master, and a new way, takes over. And he highlights again what, that everything in Christian life is done with Christ. We live in him. We live with him. We are directed by him. And no one or anything else has any dominion, any power, any mastery over us. Let me just give you a quick survey. There are many passages that describe what it is to be in Christ, to be with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. We died with him. 2 Timothy 2.11. We are buried with him. Colossians 2.12. We were made alive with him. We were raised with him and made to sit with him in the heavenly places. We are co-heirs with him. We are shares of his glory. We will reign with him. Everything you have is with him. In him. Because of him. Everything you do will be done through and for Jesus Christ, your master. And Paul is highlighting that the union we have in Christ is impacting everything you are and everything that you do. Even now. I remember once working, I remember once working at the bank and there was a guy asking a girl out. A friend of mine was asking a girl in the break room and I was confused I was confused I asked the guy in this break room aren't you you married at which point the girl looked embarrassed and ran out of the break room and he was no longer my friend (laughs) he looked quite upset see in my head I'm thinking you know Christian guy I I was in a secular environment and I, I just Looked and thinking, wait a minute, something's not right here. Why are you asking this girl out? You're married. I called him on it. I embarrassed him. Um, when you entered into that marriage relationship, your relationship with other women were different, right? And I was just identifying that. When you enter into a relationship with a new master, like Jesus Christ, your relationship with Everything else is different in the same way. Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, don't pretend to be a Christian and be enslaved to sin. Aren't you married? Aren't you the bride of Christ? Why are you going on that date with the world? So a new master is going to require a new life purpose. Verses 10 to 11. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, guess what? A new master requires a whole new way of doing things. Of living according to his desires. Because he is the master. You have a new purpose. A new life purpose. Have consideration of this. 
That word means to keep this in mind constantly. Considering the impact of this reality. This is a call to really think about the results of Jesus' death and life in your life. Your purpose is for his glory, full stop. How are you tracking? The focus here is about the free gift of God has a result in your life if you've received it. This is again an exhortation against cheap grace. Against those who say, because your grace will cover my sin, I'll just keep on going, doing what I want to do. Better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Jesus says better to obey than sacrifice. The heart of a redeemed saint is to honor him. All religions rely on works for salvation. All religions except one. Christianity, Christ is the only offers the only this is the only religion, the only faith that relies on grace and grace alone. We are already saved. We are already saved once and for all. It's in the text. We live for Christ out of love and gratitude in a state of grace, not works. We live in a state of grace, not works, with new hearts that yearn for his glory because we love him, not because we're earning our salvation. Paul preached this, and Peter said, twisted people have used this grace, this true, genuine God, God's grace, to call themselves Christians but live like the world, shaming the name of Christ and not living for his purposes. Paul regularly combated this. And you can, you can see this. This is even the center of his book in Titus. If you look at Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, real grace has a real result in a real Christian. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's pleading to the Romans who have been adopting this cheap grace. Saying, well, if, if my sin gives God grace, if, if my sin requires more grace to forgive, then therefore I should just keep on sinning. May it never be. That's not the Christian life. Your, this grace that has been given you, this real grace of God has manifested a real result in a Christian, in the Christian life. And that's evident in a life of a believer. So we've looked at the death of sin as the first test. And then the death of self. I'm not my own. I don't belong to my own. I belong to he who I've been grafted into. My life is for Jesus. 
and a death of slavery. So I no longer live according to my own purposes, but for the purposes of God, my master. And this last point sounds funny. But it, it is Paul's exhortation because of the resulting truths between verses 2 and 11. Fourth, fourth point. Verses 12 to 14. Death to your sabotage. I told you it sounds funny. Paul, Paul has put a lot of focus on how we understand ourselves in relation to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now he concludes by giving us two steps of walking by faith with this knowledge. First, don't continue to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Paul pleads, do not sabotage what God has done for you by letting you sin, letting sin reign in your bodies. He's talking to believers, not unbelievers. He's saying, you have in Christ the power to stop sinning, to stop. So repent. Stop it already. Repent, change, be sanctified. Renew the old self and stop obeying the sinful pleasures of your body and ask for God's grace. Not only is this sabotage going to impact your own life and the lives of others, this is actually an act of treason. Verses 13 and 14 uses a military metaphor. A military metaphor. That word instrument, I think, should be translated as a weapon, like a sword. So the picture here is not just a personal sabotage for godly living, but it's an act of treason itself. This is like rushing into a battle with your sword in your hand, ready to strike your opponent. And the moment on that battlefield, the moment right before you get to your enemy, you stop, you bow down, and you hand him your weapon. That's crazy. That's sabotage. He's going to kill you and your allies. He's going to be working against your master. That's insane. That's crazy. May it never be. But that's us when we willfully allow sin to reign in our lives. Don't do that. Don't allow that. Rather, live your new life. Don't continue to sin. Don't continue to engage in this act of sabotage, but rather live for his purposes. Live for his glory, for your master's glory. Live your new life in Christ. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, your weapons to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Stand firm and be faithful, not allowing the dominion of yourself, but the dominion of the Master, Jesus himself, to reign in your body. Because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. 
You are not spiritually dead. You are spiritually alive. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to him. And you can obey this call to godliness because God has provided the means, the resources to win, to fight the sin. His grace is freely given to you. Grace from God was not only a gift to justify you before the Father, to forgive you of all your sins, but it's also the same grace, the same power that created the universe, the same power that transformed you from darkness to light, that saved you for all eternity. That same power is working in you now, today, to sanctify you, to make you holy, to make you more like the Son to make you live in Christ, with Christ, for Christ. Free from the body of death. Free from the body of this death characterized by sin, selfishness, and slavery. Slavery to unrighteousness. Rather, we, we live a new life in Christ. For Ways, four ways we die to be alive. The death of sin. The death of sin is a life of righteousness. We now live a life purposed for righteousness, for his glory. The death of self. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ, for our master. The death of slavery. A life of freedom. Before Christ, we were spiritually dead. We had no ability to give God glory. God said, give me glory. And we said, nothing. We were dead. We were spiritually dead. We had no freedom. We were enslaved to unrighteousness. Now in Christ, we have freedom. We can give God glory. When you watched your children, when you scrub your toilets, when you witness to the, uh, to the streets, when you do these things for God's glory... How do, I scrub God, how do I scrub toilets for God's glory? Because you're serving your family. You're, serving, you're, you're, you're keeping your body clean. When you live your life for Christ, and all that you do is for Christ, to serve him, to serve the people that God gives you, you are now living a life of freedom. You are now living a life that gives God glory. Able to give God glory, something you were unable to do before. Death to your sabotage. A life of purposeful living. Constantly thinking, how am I going to honor him? How am I going to honor this life that God has given me? Rather than sabotaging it with the indulgences of the flesh. How am I going to purpose my time on this earth for his glory? We used to sin because we had no power from God to live for his glory because we were not in Christ but then in Christ the old passed away and the new came in now in Christ we have his power and sin no longer reigns in us we have a new master who reigns a resurrected master who promises to give us a resurrected body like him to complete the work that he began when we first believed let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these truths that govern us.
that transform us. Lord, that exhort us to live a life for your glory. I pray, Lord, that as we go out this, this morning, Lord, that we would spend time reflecting on these truths to be used as weapons of righteousness, not be acting in treason against you by indulging in the flesh. Let us be men and women who live a life for you, for your glory. We thank you for this. We pray this in your holy name.